Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 18 of the Regato Podcast, a show featuring academics, authors, artists, and people who challenge the way we think and how to take action. As you know, we've been living in a tragic time in our country amid COVID-19, political turmoil, friends and family members are losing jobs, we're seeing small businesses closing down, domestic violence is increasing, and obviously, we're seeing more instances of xenophobia, racism, and white supremacy in our news feeds. And just a few weeks ago, we all saw domestic terrorists invade our U.S. Capitol, people waving Confederate flags and nooses to incite more violence, And then amid this insurrection, we see religious groups holding crosses, people blowing shofars, people holding signs that say Jesus saves and other Bible verses. And as a Christian, it's absolutely appalling to see people use God's name to incite violence and this insurrection. And sadly, it's just another reminder of our church's history of causing trauma. And these are obviously not examples of what Jesus taught. But... It definitely represents the racism and the hate and the unrest that's brewing in our congregations. People are hurting, especially our marginalized immigrant communities. And the church has a responsibility to address these atrocities and be part of the healing process as we all fight for social justice. And that's why I'm grateful to have Dr. Robert Chow Romero as our guest today. Dr. Robert Chow Romero is a historian and professor in the departments of Chicana and Chicano Studies and Asian American Studies at UCLA. His passion for social justice issues also led him to earn his law degree at UC Berkeley. Dr. Romero has a unique perspective on social justice as an attorney, pastor, historian, and the son of a Mexican father and Chinese immigrant mother. His academic research is focused on issues of race, immigration, history, and religion, and his last book entitled The Brown Church, Five Centuries of Latina, Latino Social Justice, Theology, and Identity, discusses the ways our Hispanic church has fought oppression, slavery, and other social justice issues. We actually recorded this show back in November, before the election and before the mounting turmoil at our capital. I ended up getting sick in December and wasn't able to produce this show until today. But our conversation on Trump, the Latinx vote, immigration issues, and our Brown Church's role in advocating for social justice is more timely than ever. In this episode, Dr. Robert Chow Romero talks with us about how the Latinx church has fought oppression throughout history. He discusses why a percentage of Hispanic voters supported Trump, even though his policies and ideas have been used to hurt Brown communities. He also addresses the history of racism and colonialism in Latin America and tells the story of Antonio de Montesinos, a Dominican friar who preached sermons to denounce colonialism and those who were enslaving and abusing indigenous people in the Caribbean back in 1511. He talks about the role of faith in the life of Cesar Chavez. He also shares why there are biases against Christianity and ethnic academic studies due to the abuses and trauma caused by our churches throughout history. And we talk about his latest book and also the nonprofit work he is doing to help our Latinx communities. Here's our conversation. So, Dr. Romero, first of all, I want to give you congratulations. I just saw that Christianity Today just tweeted out that you got your book, uh, Brown Church, was just named as one of the five best books of 2020. So, congratulations. Thank you so much. Oh, yeah, I'm so happy about that. So proud about that. Thank you. What's been the reception like? So I think there's there's kind of different audiences that the book has resonated with. Um, my favorite audience is uh, that of young Latinas, young Latinos who are really looking for a way to bridge their identities, the different identities that are often, often clash. So, you know, they're Christians, they follow Jesus, but they care about justice, they care about race, and they, they care about their God-given cultural background. And they find they find that it's hard to bring that all together in a solidified identity. And um, so one of the best responses that I get about the book is from young adult Latinos, you know, it could be like in Ohio or something. And they say, Oh, thank you for your book. You know, I, I, I read it all night. I was couldn't stop crying. And I finally feel like I belong. Like I have a home, a spiritual home. That's the best. Um, some of the other responses, you know, um, I'm really proud that the book also is resonating with with my elders. I'm kind of in the middle, you know. I'm not young. I'm not old. Um, and but like, so the elder, the older generation who's 
really wanting to connect, especially with young people and, and, and kind of keep that, that connection. It's been also kind of been received there. And, and, and then finally, um, with uh, kind of traditionally white de denominations who are wanting to either realize the importance of the Latino community and really want to learn how to take some of those first steps in engaging. And so those have been some of the main communities. I mean, there's more, but I can pause there. Yeah, that's beautiful. I love that, um, especially hearing those the sentiments of the younger generation, like, oh, I have like a home. I can see my place. I see my identity in the Christian church. Absolutely. Yes. It's, 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 it's tough to navigate all that because it's like you're dealing with, with faith, you're dealing with religion, you're dealing with politics, you're dealing with race, you're dealing with gender. It's so hard to, to navigate all that. It, it, it's very difficult. And I find that many, probably millions of, of people now, and especially again, not just Latinos, but millions of people are really in this current moment deconstructing their faith and reconstructing, trying to figure out how, to, how do you deconstruct your Christian faith in this moment of Trump and all this mm -hmm. crazy ways in which Christianity and and racism has been so um, indelibly, you know, wedded together. People are trying to figure out how do I make sense of it. I don't know if you know the artist. Um, what up, RG? Have you heard of him at all? Um, I'm so I'm so I'm so out of it when it comes to music. Like I'm just stuck in the '90s. But okay, <laughs> I got. I'm gonna email. It. I'm gonna email you some tracks. Um, <laughs> but he he has um, a beautiful song called. Well, his last album called Raul. Um, he has a number of songs uh, dealing with growing up. Latino, and especially right now during this time of Trump, um, his views on immigration, the wall, um, separating families, and he has a song called 4 a.m., which is very, very powerful, where he talks about he's there with his mom and his little brother, and around, again, 4 a.m. is when uh, the immigration comes and takes his dad away, and his little bro brother's crying, like, why why are they taking dad away? He didn't do anything wrong, and um, through that song, he he shares a story about his dad um, coming to America when he was 16 years old, um, try to have a better life, and ended up raising his family, and then you know um, down the line ended up getting taken away from his family. When it, when, and so he sings about that, and it's, I'll send you the song. It's very powerful, but it, these are the issues that our young kids are are facing with and and dealing with right now. Absolutely, where that that and, and I think that music. And art really can communicate in such powerful ways, you know, beyond, you know, just regular prose. And boy, I look forward to hearing that. I find also that, unfortunately, there's a lot of folks who are not listening and who, they're digging their heels in, you know, kind of like the 30% of Latinos who voted for Trump, you know, if I could be honest, you know, it's like, and it's like, okay, but there's consequences to that. You know, that's why so many millions of young people are leaving the church. Mm -hmm. and, and just beyond the Latino community, you know, millions, millions. Yeah. He, what up RG talks about how, um, when talking to the church about this issue of immigration and his dad being taken away, like getting these, um, these responses, like, well, it's all going to work out for the good. Um, or there's all, you also have like the church, like just supporting Trump and saying that Trump, Trump's a Christian. And so that's why you should support him. And, you know, the Bible talks about obeying your governing authorities. So you have like all these like proof texts that are just like causing more and more pain and trauma towards the marginalized, towards, towards those families that have been broken up by certain administrations. And you're right. I think, I think one of the key things that you just said is like, we're not listening. Like there's so many issues where we're not listening. We're not showing an empathy to understand how these different policies are impacting people. Absolutely. It's I think, like you said, like those proof texts are taken out of context, you, as your listeners would know. And, you know, there's more than 2,000 verses in the Bible that talk about God's heart for the poor, for immigrants, for all the, on the margins, 2,000. Right? Mm. And I think, you know, those verses are just left out of of the equation, you know, in, in, in many church circles, which is crazy, right? Because, you know, we're, we're, I remember, you know, being brought up and in, in hearing, you know, if God says something once in the Bible, you better listen. Two times, mm. it's very important. Two thousand times, <laughs> it's it's, yeah. yeah, it's selective. Right. It's selective yeah. reading of scripture. Yeah, and it's hard, like, because um, I have family members who are Latino and voted for Trump and support Trump, 
and I'm trying to have empathy and try to understand where they're coming from. And I, and I totally understand why certain people do, but it's also really hard for me as I'm trying to talk to my elders um, in my family. And I'm kind of curious, like, how do we navigate those conversations with our elders um, who are maybe voting a certain way that might be more hurting communities rather than helping? Yeah. I mean, I, I think to start, I think that the church in the United States is going to be rebuilding for the next 20 or 30 years. Like things are so dire. So I try to take like a long term, what's a long term approach, medium term and short term. Right. And in terms of family, like my Latino family, you know, most probably of who voted for Trump, actually, too. Um, I think I'm sympathetic, more, more, more understanding to certain reasons why they did so and definitely not sympathetic. To some of the other reasons. So I understand like um, my Latino um, family members who are, you know, skeptical or, or of like kind of like a far left political platform that talks about socialism, right? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, like say, for example, like, and I'm Chinese too, right? But like my Chinese family, they fled as refugees from communist China because they were going to kill my grandfather because he was a pastor. But anything that smells of socialism um, I, I get the skepticism of that. Yeah. I, I, I that 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 I, I'm, I'm sensitive to, but when I find family members that, and and I should be I'm going to speak accurately. I don't want to like diss my family without you know um, unnecessarily. Uh, but I'll say there there is certain there are certain members of the Latino community who identify with with the racism of Trump, and that I will never accept. Like mm -hmm. that's not okay. That is not okay, right? And a lot of that comes from, like, in Latin America, um, we, we come from a, a racist colonial background, too, right? Where, where, where race, it was a different system than in the U.S., but it's very similar in Latin America, where it's like, if someone was legally categorized as being Spanish, quote unquote, right? That was the equivalent of being called white in the United States, right? So during the colonial period in Latin America, if someone occupied that, that, that space of being called Spanish, um, you were viewed as culturally superior. You were viewed as upper middle class. You know, you got all the rights and privileges of society. Um, and if you were not considered Spanish, quote unquote, if you were considered anything else, especially if you were considered Indian, quote unquote, you were looked down upon. You didn't get all the privileges and so forth. And even though that formal legal system ended in Latin America a couple of hundred years ago, those attitudes linger. And I think that those attitudes are deeply still embedded in, in U.S. Latino communities. Absolutely. You know, and I and, and so I, I fiercely object to to any Latino who who because of and a lot of it is it's not deliberate, but it's like it's transferring those colonial values from mm. Latin America into the U.S. and saying, see, except me, I'm white, too. I don't like those immigrants either. Right. Blah, blah, blah. Um, and, 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 and that yeah, that is really troubling to me. Mm. You're sharing your empathy. You're, you're sharing you understand where it's coming from. But how do we then kind of like have those conversations and delicately discuss these things? I think like it's hard. There's no easy answer. Um, I, I remember like a friend, a friend doing a seminar like a year ago, and it was about like how to maintain civility at the Christmas table or something, right? Mm. <laughs> something to that effect. Yeah. And I think that that is kind of in essence what we're asking, right? Like, and I think that. It takes time, first of all. I mean, I, I think it depends if our relatives are Christian, if they claim a Christian identity or if they don't. And if, if they claim a Christian identity, well, then, of course, I think gently appealing to that identity and to scripture and and being like, oh, you know, um, Theo or, you know, Abuelito or, maybe, you know, oh, gosh, I know you said that. And maybe you don't, I don't, maybe, you know, maybe I don't think that you in, intend anything bad by that, but. Could I could I share with you like that just kind of rubs me it kind of rubs me the wrong way because of da, 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 and, and they starting gently like that yeah um and then kind of just the process I think I think I think that's where I would start I think that like hammering someone over the head mm -hmm. <laughs> never, I mean there's a place for that every once in a while but usually it's not the, the the most productive approach yeah yeah it's super hard like I I'm like the worst person to even <laughs> ask you know talk about it because I. I don't do it. Like, I'm just kind of like, I just kind of like listen <laughs> quietly, respectfully. <laughs> and, yeah. 
And then afterwards, talking to my wife about it, like, I can't believe it. <laughs> you know, no, um, yeah. but, but it's, it's hard. It's really hard when you have loved ones who uh, take a different side. And especially when you're having like those, you know, we just had Thanksgiving or you're having those family get togethers and and certain people might just um, share their viewpoints very openly and loudly and and very, very proud of it. And then, like you said, like, how do we then kind of carefully kind of let me share with you my viewpoint and let's have a discussion about this. It's just, it's, it's, uh, it could be nerve wracking. Oh my gosh. So stressful. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. And I think that there's times where we might have family members that genuinely want to have, a, want to have a conversation. And there's times where some folks, they just don't want to have a conversation, want to have a conversation. And I think there's probably little point in having a conversation in that moment if folks don't want to have it, you know? That's true. I, I remember some kind of statistics, um, and I'm going to get the exact st statistics wrong, but it's like, you know, let's say you enter a room of like 20 people and, and there's a controversial topic. There might be like out of 20 people, and I'm making these these numbers up, but the point is the same, you know, five people who are like, no matter what you say, they're not going to listen. They don't care what you have to say, right? <laughs> um, there might be, <laughs> you know, five people who really agree with you. Like you don't have to doesn't take any convincing. And there's probably like 10 other people in, in the middle who might be willing to at least have a conversation. You know, I, I think so. I think a lot of it is about that discernment. You know, is it the first group of five, the mm. last group or the folks, you know, in the middle? Mm. How long have you been like thinking about writing this book around church? So um, I, I felt the calling to write something like this for over 20 years. Oh, wow. So God got a hold of my life when I was in law school. I was in Berkeley. I knew Jesus then. I was kind of a baby Christian. And I just wanted to make a lot of money, drive a Ferrari and everything. And then God really got a hold of my mm -hmm. life then. And um, everything changed. You know, I had that, that quintessential sort of born again experience, you know. And as part of, of that changing, I finally made the connection between my faith and my professional calling. I felt like God wow. knocking on my heart, like God knocking on my heart and saying, Hey, Robert, you never asked me what I wanted to do, to do with your life. And so um, that led me into a, a, a discernment process that took, you know, many months. But at the end of it, I felt this calling to become a professor and to use that platform to address issues of race and Christianity. Um, but then, but that just, that was when the journey began. I mean, that was like in 1997, right? <laughs> um, and I mean, there's so many testimonies as to how God led me, you know, to get my PhD after that and to, you know, transform me, heal me, grow me in so many ways and, the, and then become a professor at UCLA. And um, it's lot, lot, lots of mini stories in between. But to directly answer your question, um, after getting tenure at UCLA about seven or eight years ago, I, I had been doing ministry for a lot of years with my wife, Erica. Erica and I, we've been doing a lot of ministry with activist students and trying to create th that bridge between justice and Jesus. Um, but I had never engaged in like my academic research and stuff had nothing to do with the church or faith or anything. In fact, my research was about the Chinese in Mexico, you know, kind of like my own background. And so my first book was about the Chinese in Mexico, which I love, but, but, but my ministry worlds and academic worlds were separate. After I got tenure, I just I was listening to a Lauren Hill song um, to talk about like old school music back in the day. Yeah. And in her MTV album, in this one interlude, it's interlude five. Um, she says, I'm tired of leaving like two thirds of myself outside of the door right, when I make music. Right. And she was referring to her Christian faith. Mm. And I said to myself, I'm tired of leaving two thirds of myself outside of the UCLA door. Right. Mm. Um, and I thought. That, that led me on the journey of thinking, well, how could I bridge in an appropriate way, you know, for a public university, of course, in an appropriate way, how could I bridge, um, you know, my ministry and activism and community organizing, pastoral work with my academic research? And that led me to really think about Brown Church. And, and, and one last thing I'll say is that it's Brown Church started from the, a practical theology question, namely, you know, how can... Christianity be relevant to these millions of, of of Latino millennials who are leaving the church, and that led me to dig into the history, and that led to Brown Church. Mm. 
What a beautiful story. And I mean, I think the timing is perfect because I, I think that um, all the research I'm seeing about Gen Y and this next generation, Generation Alpha, totally all in on social justice issues. I'm noticing even at my work as when I'm looking to hire people and I'm chatting with them, like the questions I'm getting now from the young talent versus questions I got 10 years ago mm. are totally different. Like I'm getting questions now about, you know, what is your company doing around X, Y, and Z? How are they handling this issue? How are they supporting the black community during after George Floyd was murdered? Like they're asking these questions that these are questions we never got before. And so I'm, I'm like very excited. Like people are re- like these young, this young generation, I think is hyper curious, especially growing up and seeing the violence on TV, seeing the violence on social media. And um, especially what just happened with George Floyd, like seeing his murder on video going viral. And then now like looking at parents, looking at organizations, how are, how is the world, how is society handling these issues and what are we doing about it? And so to me, I'm very excited about this next generation coming up. Like I'm seeing a lot of passion for social justice. That's why I say, I think your book is like, the timing is perfect. Thank you. That's very hopeful. And especially, you know, when you're writing the book, you're like, oh, you want it to come out as soon as possible. And then it came out, you know, I think I would say, you know, in God's timing, you know, um, when the moment is right. And that, thank you. That's very, it's very encouraging. Yeah, I, I think um, I'm very hopeful for this next generation coming up. I think just with um, the things they're seeing in society, especially the, these last four years with Trump and also just the pandemic and seeing the, the protests back and forth. I think we, we have a we have a generation of kids coming up that are seeing all this, observing all this, and then wondering like, what's my place in this? I need to I need to like take a stand. So it's very very it's a it's an interesting period that these kids are growing up in, and I think your book is definitely serving a certain need, so we can help to see identity for those of us that are in the Latinx community um, to see also our role because that's also like an area that um, like I never got educated on that side of it. Like my understanding of the Christian church and Christianity was largely from, from Europe, like the, the theology, the preaching, even like preachers like Spurgeon and George Whitfield all come from Europe. And a lot of times when I'm looking at church history, that's mostly white men. So it's, it's very much male centric and also white centric. And so like, uh, unfortunately, like I'm very ignorant of like how the Brown church has, has moved. I can really relate to that too. I mean, even though I grew up in the Latino church and also in the Chinese American church, same thing. I mean, most of, most of the books we read were just translations, you know, um, or reiterations of white American, you know, or European, you know, thinkers. And there was some good stuff there and I'm grateful, but we were not, aware like you said i mean i wasn't even aware even like 10 years ago i wasn't aware that there was this 500 year christian justice tradition in latin america and among us latinos that i call the brown church like that 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 we've been reading the bible and theologizing about justice and race and every other topic salvation for 500 years <laughs> mm. um, justice is kind of a trendier thing now over the last 5 10 years in christian circles in the us so it was amazing for me to discover for myself that, oh, my gosh, you know, since the 1500s, we as 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 Latin Americans, Latinos, we've been thinking about this stuff, too. And so in the book, I talk about like how the Brown Church was born actually in 1511. Wow. 1511 when there was a again, I'm defining Brown Church as the Latin American Christian justice tradition in 1511 in what is now like the Dominican Republic and Haiti and the Caribbean, there was a, a, a Dominican priest by the name of Montesinos. And also it's important to note 1511, of course, is six years before Luther nailed his famous thesis. So it's before mm. the Protestant Catholic divide. But in 1511, this Dominican friar gets up on the Sunday before Christmas. So actually kind of um, 119 years ago, I'm sorry, 519 years ago, sorry. And, and, and he, he preaches to this audience of Spanish elites in, on the, in the islands there. And, and he says, listen very carefully. The words I'm about to preach will be the strangest you ever heard. 
He says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. And then he says, you Spaniards, God gave you the opportunity to share about Jesus in love to these hundreds of thousands of natives that then that then lived in, in what we call the Caribbean, the so-called um, West Indies. But he said, God gave you the opportunity to share about Jesus with, with in love. And instead, you've enslaved them and you're killing them. And this is so horrendous. And if you don't repent, God's going to send you to hell. <laughs> he preached that in wow. 1511. 1511, the, wow. first, the first social justice sermon. Um, and then the Spaniards, you know, just like today, you know how yeah. if a pastor gets up and preaches a justice sermon, he gets all these right. emails and people get really mad. Right, <laughs> right. Spaniards, you know, the Spanish elites did the same thing. Got all mad at him. He came back the next Sunday and preached part two. And that's when the Brown <laughs> Church was born. <laughs> wow, brilliant. Oh, I love that. And I love also that he was addressing like the slave, the slavery issue that he was seeing. Yes, mm-hmm. it's just horrible. I mean, and, and unfortunately, kind of his prophetic kind of um, words were not really heeded. And within probably fifty years after that, I mean, there was basically no indigenous population left in the Caribbean. Mm. Yeah, it's so so horrible. I, I had no idea that it went back to fifteen, like. 1511 that's amazing yeah before even luther um and to have that that preached very much a social justice sermon being preached um so early on and uh and sad that and tragic that like you said it wasn't heated and um the abuse that happened after that that's amazing and again this is like the history that i don't i didn't know so so you started like you really started diving into this about 10 years ago even less, <laughs> to be honest. Oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> Maybe even like like seven years ago, I just started to kind of read into like, and, and this is where like I go to an amazing brown church called La Fuente Ministries in Pasadena, and my pastor Marcos Canales, he is the one that introduced me to this. So he, you know, having studied at Fuller Centro Latino, he introduced me to the fields of of Latino theology and Latin American liberation theology and some other types of fields, which I didn't even know existed. Of course, I had heard about liberation theology, but didn't know much about it. But but he introduced me to the fact that, well, yes, there is liberation theology in Latin America, and that's very valuable. There is Protestant, there's a Protestant expression of, you know, that talks about similar justice issues called Misión Integral. And then there's, there's U.S. Latino, Latina theology born in the U.S. And he introduced me to that world. I just started to read those books he recommended and found out, oh my gosh, there's this history that's out there. I'm not the first person to talk about it, but it's, it's for the most part, it's scattered. It's like you, you only read about it if you're a very specialized Latino theology scholar at a place like Fuller. Um, but even if you're, maybe if you're a seminary student at Fuller, you might never hear about this. So, yes, it's very, so it's like, it's been sort of, it's like kind of, kind of this, this his, historical sort of experience that very few people know about. And there have been amazing scholars like Justo Gonzalez and, and others, many others, right, who have been writing about this stuff, you know, for decades. But it, I guess if, if there's a contribution of the Brown Church was that I guess I could write a book. I had the privilege of writing a book that would pull it all together. Yeah. Um, and, and that would that would pull it all pull it pull it all together with a framework that's that that is attractive to some people, right? This you know the framework of the Brown Church and Brown theology and so forth. Yeah, and I love how uh, in your book you talk about it, like you you call it uh, brown jazz. Yeah, like p- pulling together. Like, so another part of brown church is that you know I had to bring together my own background in ethnic studies, in Chicano Latino studies, right? Like in critical race theory, right? I had to figure how could I translate because I'm attempting to write this stuff also for purposes of UCLA as well, not right. just the church. So I thought, how could I use tools academic tools theoretical tools from ethnic studies from critical race theory merge them with latino theology liberation <laughs> theology and that's what i meant by the brown jazz putting it all together yeah and, and you know like with jazz like you know it when jazz came out it broke all the rules of, of music right <laughs> i think brown church breaks all the rules too right i mean i'm not a trained theologian i mean I, i'm like i'm like I'm, i am a pastor but i'm like a hood pastor who just reads his bible a lot right <laughs> and has been in the trenches of ministry, right? Um, and, and taught ethnic studies and CRT. Like, so it, it, it was a very kind of raw attempt to, but in that sense, I wasn't 
bound by conventions, right? I didn't have to, I'm not a formally trained theologian, so I didn't, I didn't even know how to do that formally if I wanted to. Same time, like, you know, um, I'm not trained in religious studies per se, so I don't, no one, there's, there's no professor who guided me and said, you have to study religion from this purely right objective lens or blah, 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 social scientific lens. I mean, I don't believe that's even true, true or possible, but, and so I kind of just like put it all together and like, it's like brown jazz and hopefully the result is something that a lot of people can resonate with. Well, I think what's also beautiful is that you're you're taking this from like a, uh, a historical lens, like you're a historian. So you're like you're taking you're taking all the pieces and like trying to construct this history based on what you're seeing. So you're really like becoming a, like a journalist, investigative journalist and historian going in to try to take these pieces. And um, yeah, because you're not meant to be like a theologian, but you're just like grabbing. Here's what's being said. Here's what's happening. And kind of telling that story. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. At the end of the day, it, it's a it's a history. It's like a church history. Yeah. Were there any um, like putting together history? Are there like certain like challenges you had, like any sort of biases or things you had to like watch out for as you're kind of constructing this? Yeah, it depends upon like for for what audiences. Like, so one of the biases that's in uh, history of ethnic studies which is I'm, I'm a historian of ethnic studies, right? There's a lot of great things about it. And it's, it's what I am at my core, but there is a very strong bias against Christianity. And Christianity is viewed as simply the religion of the colonizers, right? With, with no redemptive value, right? And I get that, right? It's like, oh my gosh, for the last 500 years, probably 80% of Christianity has been colonial and just caused so much damage. Mm. Right? And, and I, I don't, I don't try to apologize for that at all. And I condemn that, you know, all the yeah. horrors of in, intertwining European colonialism, American colonialism with Christianity and civil religion. That's horrible. But that's, that's the only kind of accepted view, really, for the most part, honestly. And so I had to somehow make the case that, th- that there was this 20% of Christianity, right? In Latin America amongst U.S. Latinos that was on the front lines of justice, right? Indeed, my argument in the book is that this brown, brown church history represents um, this important community cultural wealth of our Latino community and um, that there is this spiritual capital that's part of this brown church history and community cultural wealth, and that's drawing from critical race theory. But And, and, and I'm saying, well, as Chicano Latino historians we we can't claim to understand the, the Latino community without understanding the role of religion, right? And also, you know, how it has been a source of strength and community, community cultural wealth and spiritual capital. And so I had to kind of walk walk a, a delicate line, but it's not hard because I, I I truly believe that, right? That like yeah yeah, 80% of it has been horrible and colonial, right? With some good stuff yeah. mixed in there, I dare say. And there has been this 20% that is not discussed, has not been discussed really, where Christianity was a tool of empowerment um, amongst Latinos and Latinas. Yeah, that's good. I, I like how, how you're approaching this. And I'm wondering, like, what advice do you have for for those of us who may be in conversation with those who maybe um, they look at the colonization, the some of the trauma that the church has caused, and they don't see any sort of redemptive value in, in Christianity or the Catholic Church? where maybe we're in a discussion with them, uh, what would be some ways to like navigate those discussions? For sure. Yeah. I think first to totally recognize that, that trauma is real and horrible. And sometimes I see some Christians, they try to like almost apologize or, and that's not the right approach. It's like if someone comes to you in your family and says, I experienced this horrible abuse by another family member, you don't try to like, Oh, it's bad. But you know, no, you say, that is horrible. And, and, and you call it out, right? And I think that's the yeah. first thing is to, and I think that will, just that alone is a huge step, right? And then I think, then, then you say that actually, you know, if you're interested, you know, there's actually this other part, you know, of history where um, there have been, where Christians have been on the front lines of justice, right? Precisely because of their faith. And, and that that was actually who Jesus was. And that Christianity is actually, it's not a Western religion. It's from 
from the east, right? Um, Abrahamic religion, you know, from the east, and that Jesus himself, and this is where we're, you have to deconstruct a lot of those colonial notions of who Jesus is, and then from there build upon, you know, how that legacy has been expressed in history. But like in the book, for example, talk about how Latino theologians like um, Virgilio Elizondo and Justo Gonzalez and, and um, others have talked about how um, it was very significant that Jesus was from Galilee. You say, taking our Latino cultural lens and reading the Gospels, we find it very important that Jesus was from Galilee because Galilee was the hood of its day. Galilee mm. was the hood. And when God came to earth, incarnated, you know, in humanity, God chose to be from the hood, right? Galilee was a borderlands region um, in which uh, Jewish, Greek, and Roman culture came together. It was a colonized region. Galilee was on the fringes of, of the Jewish community itself. The power was in Jerusalem, right? The political, religious, economic authority. People from Galilee were looked down upon as like, oh, they're Galilean, right? Um, they speak with an accent, right? They're these kind of, kind of um, country bumpkins. They're these mm. campesinos, if you will, right? Um, and it's very significant and deliberate. Latino theologians would say that God came in Jesus Christ as a Galilean, right? And, and, and they frame that as, they call it the Galilee principle, the Galilee principle. Oh. Those that human beings reject, Virgilio Elizondo says, those that human beings reject, God chooses as God's very own. Mm. So beautiful. The Galilee beautiful. Principle, right? So beautiful, right? I mean, we could just like drop the mic. Yeah. And, just, and kind of just leave right now on that, right? And it's like, so that, it totally stands colonial Christianity on its head to see Jesus in his own historical context. And also the fact that um, Jesus did most of his ministry in Galilee, right? And um, Jesus was raised in Galilee. Jesus chose the leaders of his new movement. They were all Galileans, right? They weren't, they weren't from the Beverly Hills or like Palos Verdes or like, you know, Harvard of the day. They were yeah. these rabbinic school flunkies, right? Who were fishermen, right? Who didn't have the, the legit creds to fit into the institutions of their day. But in order to change the system, Jesus had to choose those who are outside of the system. And I think that, so that conversation kind of decolonizing Jesus, right? That's a great place to start. And then from there, how has that, how has, has that same legacy of, of Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus of Galilee, how has that borne itself out historically? And how did that get corrupted over time? Oh, that's beautiful. I never heard that um, that perspective on in Galilee. I had I had no idea. I never heard that before. But that makes it so much more beautiful. Yes, and and that is a very distinctly Latino theology insight. You know, it's part of this community cultural wealth right, that I'm talking about. It's like that insight came from a Roman Catholic priest in 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 the hood of San Antonio, Texas, ministering right in the Mexican American community who went to get his PhD and said, oh my gosh, Galilee mm. is like is like the barrio of San Antonio, right? So it's like that social location really matters. You know? and, and, there's, and there's 500 years of that type of treasure there for us to dig into. Oh, that's beautiful. I love that. And it, yeah, you think about like, you know, um, Christ could have been, you know, stayed in the temple. He could have stayed in, you know, the religious institutions and chose as his disciples other scholars other pharisees to kind of join up like these are the scholarly leaders i'm gonna i'm gonna train them and and that's not where jesus spent his time he spent his time with the people and then hearing this perspective of like he wasn't in the nicest area he was in, in the galilee and like and that's where he chose to do his ministry and spend his time and to train up disciples like what a beautiful picture of of the christ like being with the marginalized amen yeah it, it, it just it totally just reorients our view of christianity yeah oh i like that i also wanted to ask you about um caesar chavez and um i don't know you know sadly i don't know anything about caesar chavez's life um at all um but i do know you address his his life in your book and his impact on christian spirituality yes so um you know caesar chavez as your listeners will know is probably probably the most arguably the most famous latino right in the united states 
He was a leader of the United Farm Workers Movement, along with Dolores Huerta, and as, as, along with, with um, Larry Itliong, who was a Filipino farm worker leader. And the United Farm Workers was really famous, right, in the 1960s and 70s, um, because it was the first time that farm workers were really were able to organize themselves and be successful at it, right, and really kind of make some real grounds and concessions. And so, you know, he's like an icon in the 1960s. There's like a stamp about him and all this kind of stuff. But most people have never heard about the role of faith in his life, the role of faith, Christian faith, right? So they've never heard, for example, that Cesar Chavez said, the only justice is Christ. But they've never heard mm. that he said that the church is, is, is one powerful, important expression of God on earth. Right? And no, no movement should ignore the power of the church, right? Things like that, right? And Beautiful. People, pe people did not know also that what made his organizing, his organizing so powerful was that he fused popular Mexican Catholicism, he fused that with Catholic social teachings about justice, with community organizing principles. <laughs> and he brought those three together and that's what made his movement so distinct and so powerful. It was famous march right, um, to, to Sacramento from Delano took place during Lent. And they arrived oh. on Easter morning and celebrated communion on Easter morning. Oh, beautiful. The last day of the march. And the altar that they used was a farm worker truck. Oh, so beautiful. beautiful right? So beautiful, right? His famous fast, right? Um, that 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 one of the Kennedys came and, and broke his fast with him, right? Was very famous, and but it wasn't just a hunger strike; it was a fast. And Cesar Chavez said that, that this is a spiritual fast that I'm doing, right, to purify myself, right? Um, things like that, right? Like um, the very at the very core of the farm workers' movement was Christian faith, explicit, right? And I believe I'm biased, but I believe that that was its unique power. And so I try to bring tell that story about the role of, of faith in the life of Cesar Chavez in the book as well. That's so cool. Why do you think that we don't hear that story? I mean, I never heard that that story about Cesar Chavez and the role, role of faith in his life. I think like it depends upon the audience. I like, so in many, and, and I say this, I'm a community organizer. Right? <laughs> and in the world of community organizing, faith is oftentimes, not all the time, but it's oftentimes kind of looked down upon. And that's just a fact, mm -hmm. right? So many people, when they write about his organizing, they just, in a very kind of biased way, just leave all that out, right? That's part mm -hmm. of it. In ethnic studies, same thing, right? I mean, my own department is called the Cesar Chavez Department of, of Chicana, Chicano, and Central American Studies. But the role of faith in his life is just, I mean, it's almost never discussed, right? And so it's, I think in those circles, it's that bias. I think in white Christian circles, whether Catholic or Protestant, Chavez was viewed as a rabble rouser, right? So even to this day, I've been told, if you go to the Central Valley, right, and speak with middle-class white folks, they'll be like, oh, it's Chavez, oh, that he was a horrible person, right? So I think that his his faith story has not translated into kind of mainstream Christian life. And then you have, of course, in, in, within Protestant circles, a strong anti-Catholic bias, right? So because he was Roman Catholic, I mean, that would just be a hill too high for most people to climb, you know, mm. in Protestant circles as well. Mm. Are you seeing like um, in the Latinx community uh, more like Catholics and Christians working together? Um, like, I feel like there is that, that separation that sometimes, sometimes churches aggravate each other around this. But are you finding like more alliances happening between Protestants and Catholics? Or is it you seeing like no change at all, just kind of everyone's in their own lane? I think amongst young people, I find more willingness. Um, and amongst justice people. Right? So like I have dear, you know, dear friends or people who are becoming dear friends that are Roman Catholic, uh, Latinx, justice folks. And they read Brown Church and we're like, yeah, we're all in. right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and and. And I, and I totally feel that way. I feel like Brown Church as an identity, it transcends. I'm mm -hmm. not going to let this, you know, these Europeans from 
the 1500s like separate me from like my, my beloved sisters and brothers who all yeah. love Jesus, right? <laughs> that's yeah. that's the colonizers kind of thing, right? Um, and, and so I think that for those of us who, who who express our Christian faith with this ethos of, of justice, it's easier to bridge because we're like, oh my gosh, I'm not going to fight about those dumb things. Right? I, I don't, yeah, you know, like we love we love Jesus. You know, Jesus died on the cross for us and rose again. And justice to God's heart, we follow Jesus. Mm. Let's do it. Right? Yeah. Let's change the immigration laws, right? Let's fight for. Let's let's stand with and 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 fight with, you know, um, immigrants who who are who are losing their their their, their civil rights. Um, and um, and that translates also into like young people. Most young people don't care either. Right? They're like, you know, like so. If I work with folks from let's say like intervarsity, right, or or um, groups like that, like Latinos. Those those divisions are much more permeable as mm. well. I think now now um, before we go, I see that guitar in the background, and I'm like, what <laughs> what what don't you do? Because I know you're an author, you're an attorney, uh, professor, UCLA. Um, you you founded Jesus for Revolutionaries. You're co-chair of Matthew 25 Movement. How do you like? <laughs> how do you do all this work? <laughs> <laughs> that, that's that's very kind and. You know, I never set out to do it, and you know the hats change at different times and different emphases, and so things like with Matthew 25, you know, we helped found it, and now we're you know moving to a board format. I'm on the board, and so kind of different seasons, different hats shift. But I think one thing I do want to emphasize is that like, um, my my wife is a spiritual director, so she keeps me in line. But like, you know, mm. I I keep really high boundaries <laughs> honestly most days i just work nine to five i really do like ever since I, i've been a professor at ucla for 15 years and for 98 percent of the time i work nine to five and most of the time honestly i haven't even worked on the weekends don't tell my colleagues that <laughs> <laughs> but it's true so it's like, i'm not one of those guys that that's like stays awesome boundaries because I, so I, i'm a big believer in, in sabbath a big believer in email boundaries and in, in work boundaries. I want to do a great job. I want to honor my work, but it's not my identity. So, and, you know, there's seasons that are harder than others and seasons where I'm stressed out like crazy too. Yeah. That's definitely true. But but that balance, like, it's always been something that, I don't know where, where it was instilled into me. Probably I guess my, that's where my wife helps me a lot. Has um has the COVID nineteen impacted your schedule at all? You know, honestly, like as 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 a professor, it's made it easier, honestly, hmm. um, because I don't have to commute all the way to campus, and you know, like I don't live particularly close to campus because I can't afford it. But um, so as everything's online, so it's easier. And then like it it was perfect as Brown Church came out at the end of May this past year. I mean, it was perfect. So I could just do all these kind of webinars and podcasts, you know, just from the comfort of my own home. You know, again, I wish there wasn't COVID, but there have been those upsides. Yeah. Are you um, are you already thinking about like your next book? I have a few little books that are coming out. <laughs> um, one book that that we'll be working on with with my friend Jeff Leo is a book on CRT and critical race theory and Christianity. Oh. So that's, it's really in the ideation stage. It's not really kind of, but that's like probably the next big one. There's a few little ones, you know, coming out. Um, I'm thinking about the next steps really for how to, how to leverage this platform that God has given, right, with Brown Church and to maximize it, you know. And so one of the things I'm thinking about is like, oh, what about starting, for example, like a Brown Church Research Center, right, or a Brown Church Research Institute or something. Oh, like yeah, that. right. That kind of thing. Yeah, totally. um, and and you know to look at you know issues of race as they pertain to Latinos and the church, right? And so things like, you know, what is the the experience of Latinos? You know, like an example, like Latino students at Christian colleges, right? Like, pull together the best researchers, right, and say, okay. And there are my friends who are already doing this research, but to be able to kind of create, a, if I might dare say so, like a hub where we can kind of pull that research together, right, and things yeah. like that. Um, I had a friend who hearing uh, one of their research papers recently, and they were talking about how you know, he interviewed, for example, um, Latino students from several major seminaries throughout the United States. And, and he asked them about, you know, 
what has been the experience of racial climate, right? And the experience of, of, the, of the, the cultural competence of their professors, right? they're mostly white professors at, at the seminaries and it was not a pretty picture, right? But kind of that, that kind of research to bring out, to stir change, I think, you know, like Chicano studies mixed with Latino church history and, and, and to pull in other researchers, right? Sociologists and other folks who can kind of, kind of uh, do that. So that, that, that's kind of one thought. Like uh, I'm also part, trying, looking to partner with different uh, Christian organizations who, who can like take the Brown church concept and extend it in their own, in their own lanes. Right. Again, I've got a day job, right? I can't do all this mm -hmm. stuff. Right? <laughs> right. But, but my, but, but my friends, right. Like my friend, like friend and, you know, even mentor, you know, Sandra, Sandra Maria Van Oostel, for example, right. She has an organization called Chasing Justice, right. If, if she and her folks can take the concept and make it applicable in their context. Right. Great, right. Or that kind of thing, right. Partnerships with different orgs that can do that. That's where I'm looking at kind of like the next, next step. That's awesome. Um, so for those listening in that want to learn more or get involved, what's like the best way for them to like, reach out to you because I know you're involved with Matthew 25, Jesus for Revolutionaries, and then you got the work with UCLA. The usual places, you know, okay. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, that's, that's probably the best place to start. Excellent. What I'll, what I'll do, I'll put links on the uh, on the blog for all those different resources so they know how to get in touch with you. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Romero, for being on the podcast. Thank you, Mike. It's a pleasure. And I hope that we can continue our conversation and friendship. And I, I appreciate just your, your uh, your heart and, and, and the spirit of the podcast as well. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this conversation with Dr. Robert Chow Romero about his latest book entitled The Brown Church, Five Centuries of Latina and Latino Social Justice, Theology and Identity. It's a beautiful history of the ways that our brown church has fought oppression and helped to bring healing to the vulnerable and the marginalized. I'd love to know what you thought about this episode. Let me know by messaging me on Instagram, TikTok, or Twitter at Delgado Podcast. Next time, we're chatting with Dr. Alistair E. McGrath about the life and faith of his mentor and colleague, J.I. Packer, who passed away on July 17th. And if you found this podcast helpful in any way, please let me know by rating the show on iTunes and or leaving a comment. Your vote can help this show get more visibility. Thank you so much. Take care. And we'll chat more next time.